I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where the intersection of finance, technology, and policy come together. And I'm your host, Chris Brummer. The future of finance is now. Welcome, everyone, to our stocking stuffer of the year, where we will be counting down the top five developments in fintech for 2019 and handing out some honorary awards along the way. Now, to do the honors with me, I have Dan Gorfine, the former head of LabCFTC and now an entrepreneur in his own right, advising lots of firms on external and regulatory strategies. Dan, thanks for making it in. Thanks so much, Chris. So before getting to our top five countdown, just to note that we did an informal social media poll uh, asking some of our Twitter friends from their perspective which developments uh, in a certain number of categories will probably prove, in their opinion, to be the most consequential of 2019. And Dan, you know, what was really interesting about this question was we didn't ask folks out there in the Twitterverse what were the best known developments of 2019. Instead, the idea was to ask them, well, what of these sort of major developments do they think are the most consequential and will be the most consequential going forward? And uh, we had a, a number of different uh, categories. We had open banking as being one category, or quantum computing, or digital currencies. And then the last option was AI and machine learning. Uh, Dan, uh, what would you say the guess is? I mean, people are trying to figure out, well, what developments this year were the most consequential, open banking, quantum computing, digital currencies, or AI machine learning? What's your guess? Uh, You know, I I think I'd have to go digital currencies, Chris. Oh, that is correct. That. that is correct. Is there any particular intuition there, or? Uh... Well, you know, I think it really. I think at the end of the day, we've wrapped up a decade now of Bitcoin. Um, but I think the real catalyst for this year were some things we're going to talk about. You know, the Libra announcement and central bank digital currencies and the role of a digital dollar. I think that's what people have top of mind heading into a new decade. Or it could just be that people who, who like digital currencies uh, are really, really, really active on Twitter. You realize now it's been almost 10 years since you and I met and became really good friends. And 10 years ago, we started thinking about this new topic, this concept of fintech, right? Or at least the modern iteration of fintech. And I remember at the time, you and I always asked ourselves, at what point will fintech go from being this kind of separate siloed category to just being ubiquitous, to being what financial markets and services are are all about? And I kind of think that 2019 starts to really mark that year, whether it's Wall Street, Silicon Valley, uh, or Washington. We're seeing all these facets focused on how tech is impacting financial markets and services. And the amount of engagement you're getting on these types of questions, I think, symbolizes exactly that point. Well, you know, just you know, to that point, what we're seeing, I think, in 2019 is a lot of times people are tackling the issues in terms of their categories. And then sometimes they're just saying, well, we're going to have a discussion on finance. You know, you know, instead of calling it fintech, we're just going to call it finance because the technological development has so radically upended or changed uh, certain business practices. Uh, just, you know, for those who may be a little bit curious about the poll that we did again on on, on Twitter, uh, digital currencies 
did win out, uh, good guess, Dan, uh, with 54% of the respondents saying digital currencies. Uh, the next uh, largest guess or, or opinion was in the quantum computing big data category with 18% uh, believing that, that, that the developments this year in quantum computing and big data were the most significant. Uh, after that uh, was AI machine learning at 16% and then rounding it out uh, was open banking with 12%. That's super interesting. And actually, I think that your, your viewers, your listeners, and those engaging with you on Twitter, they're really savvy because if you think about it, I mean, quantum computing is all about compute power. And at the end of the day, that compute power is what drives advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning. So as computers continue to become exponentially more powerful, what that means from an AI machine learning perspective is going to be pretty profound. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, uh, certainly spillover behind e you know each of those categories. I mean, advances in AI and machine learning could impact the way you run smart contracts when it comes to digital currencies. Um, and yeah, it's a very, very savvy sort of group of folks, I think, who, who were participating. And it's really interesting that outside of the digital currency space, uh, it, you really get this impression that it's, it's really anyone's, anyone's opinion as, as to really what could be uh, the major uh, or the most consequential development of this year uh, looking forward. Absolutely. Great. Well, I guess now we will turn to what everybody wants to hear, our top five developments of 2019. And with us, we have Dave Letterman, who's going to help. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, you didn't. No, that didn't happen. No. Ah, no, Chris. no. All right. No, no. Okay. So our top five. Drum roll, please, for number five. Number five, transitory theory of digital assets. Basically, the idea that a digital asset that is a security can become a commodity. Now, this was a big, interesting idea uh, introduced, I guess, originally with Bill Himnan, but also repeated by SEC, uh, who was uh, with the SEC, the uh, head of Corp Fin, Corp Fin yep. and uh, later then repeated with and, and by uh, Chairman Clayton. Um, it's an idea that, that's been uh, very recently embraced uh, explicitly by the new CFTC chairman, that this idea that you can have a cryptocurrency that may begin its life as a security, um, and, but nonetheless can kind of transform, like a transformer, <laughs> uh, into a commodity and therefore find itself regulated um, in completely different ways. Now, now, this, in my opinion, Dan, hugely important issue, and it also uh, is eligible for a number of uh, special awards. Uh, among the many awards, I think the it gets the, wow, that sounds logical, but I don't think that's written down anywhere award. Uh, it also, I think, gets the, how we going to implement this award. <laughs> Get it? Howie, Howie <laughs> test. <laughs> I know. And you have too much time on I your hands, do, I do, I do, I do, I do. Uh, so, Dan, I mean, w w what were your thoughts on this? I mean, it's, it keeps popping up at almost every issue, not just asking about digital assets that have already been issued and ICOs, but then it also has to do with market infrastructure providers. Totally. No, this is a really fascinating topic. And look, I mean, if we if we step back for a second, you had the ICO mania, you know, end of 2017 through the first half of 2018 all kinds of new tokens being issued. Um, and the SEC, rightfully so, clamped down on a lot of what looked like very traditional capital raising. And so they ultimately said, look, if this thing is, is acting as, as would a typical security, we're going to regulate it as a typical security. 
I do think there's probably a lot more clarity on a lot of those types of projects than, than some folks uh, will, will let on. But at the end of the day, you're honing in on where there still is existing ambiguity. And I would kind of point to two areas. One, we still don't know exactly the outer parameters of when you define a, a security versus a utility or, or a, you know, a consumption coin. And then there's this concept of morphing. And, and that is really difficult at the margins to figure out what that means. Absent some type of you know, safe harbor or real parameters as to when that transition occurs, it will be very difficult to implement and operationalize. So I, I, I do think that's an area that heading into 2020 will continue to see real focus and energy. And I ultimately am a believer that a lot of this will end up getting resolved in the courts uh, yeah. through, you know, through the judiciary. Absent uh, an act of Congress, that's probably who the ultimate arbiter will be. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of really interesting questions of of interoperability arise, but like, but regulatory interoperability, right? So, so what happens and how do, say, the SEC and the CFTC communicate with one another? You know, if, if there is a digital asset that has sort of transformed or changed or morphed, um, does the other agency know that that's the case? Because um, – uh, we know now that there's a, a, a popular view that not only can securities or digital assets that are securities become commodities, but, you know, if you have a certain kind of fork of a digital uh, currency uh, that arises in a certain kind of way that, you know, uh, Chairman Tarbert has said, well, look, you know, you could have a commodity that gives rise to a certain kind of security. And, you know, it gets really, really hard to figure out, okay, between the regulatory agencies, well, who's in charge of what? And, you know, one question that I've just sort of to put on my law professor hat and start annoying people with is, is this question of, well, if, if a digital asset can evolve from a security to a commodity, how should a derivatives contract be regulated that references a digital asset that was a security when written but transforms to a commodity before the expiration of the contract. Now, for those of you oh, out there, that don't make people's heads hurt. Exactly, Chris. it <laughs> makes mine as well, right? I mean, you know, if, if you so so the regulators don't, you know, would have to have a game plan to sort of figure out what are what's the full ramification. I think that that could prove really consequential. Um, if not from a regulatory perspective, as you said, perhaps in the courts. No, and, and this is an area where collaboration and cooperation between agencies is so important because you're obviously highlighting the distinction between, you know, commodity security. But then let's also keep in mind that a lot of these kind of tokenized assets also are, are seeking to, to serve as a medium of exchange and a store of value, which gets you into the payment space. So there is long run, if there are successful uh, uh, tokens that serve a medium of exchange function, that also kind of implicates banking laws. I have to use this too, Chris, as an opportunity. I know you and I have talked about Chuck E. Cheese coins before, and we tend <laughs> to agree on this. But it's another thing I want to flag heading into 2020 is to the extent that something is not a security and it, it, it is an actual digital commodity or a consumption or utility coin, I'm incredibly interested to see how many of these projects move forward in the coming years and what the economic realities are around those tokens. You know, I, I know you've talked, you know, I've talked about this before and I wrote a piece that kind of goes through and analyzes a, a utility or a consumption coin from the perspective of how you actually value foreign currencies. And I think there's something there. My, my ultimate view is that post, you know, a, a stage of some type, type of broad mainstream adoption, a token will start to really trade relative to other currencies 
uh, driven by the same economics, essentially. So there will be natural kind of caps and stability that come into how a true consumption coin would trade, much like you're not going to pay a lot more than 25 cents per Chuck E. Cheese coin. The same may be true for some of these uh, utility or consumption coins. But then again, we've not really seen them and these projects come to scale, uh, at least in 2019. Okay, so number four, drum roll, please. Quantum banking, which made our list also, obviously. Uh, that sounds so cool. It does. It I want to go to a quantum bank. Well, well, well for, for a quantum bank. Wow. <laughs> you know, uh, trademark that. I mean, so tr- quantum banking also uh, comes out with some very special awards. Uh, it comes out with the time to throw away everything I own because it'll get hacked award. It also comes with the I want paper records for the apocalypse award. Now, uh, for those of you who didn't uh, hear, uh, there were some radical advances made uh, in terms of data and big data processing. Uh, Google basically said that it had achieved a long sought breakthrough um, in something called quantum supremacy, which is wow. even cooler sounding than quantum bank. Yeah, uh, that's, that's probably better than a quantum bank. Yeah, quantum supremacy. Yeah, Sounds yeah. like a superhero. Yes. Uh, and it could allow new kinds of computers to do calculations at speeds that apparently are inconceivable. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. With the technology that we uh, rely on today. Um, and uh, in one uh, media report, uh, apparently uh, this Google-driven device could do uh, in about three and a half minutes, a kind of mathematical calculation that uh, supercomputers could not complete in under 10,000 years. But then did you see that IBM came back and said, no, no, that could be done in a couple days. So I like the battle going on between the uh, the, the, the quantum uh, supremacy here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just like, you know, Jedi lightsabers. Trying to do that. You know, but, but one of the, the, the real interesting uh, uh, questions is, you know, what does quantum or what could quantum banking mean? And I think that what a lot of people are recognizing is just the advance in in and of itself is portending uh, or is opening the door to the possibility of all kinds of applications uh, that we, we can't even imagine. Totally. Uh, but, you know, I guess uh, every, everything comes with both uh, sort of positives and, and negatives here. I wonder what, what, what kinds of thoughts you've had about no, it. No, this is a huge deal. And, and for people that aren't following this topic of quantum computing, it's an important one. Uh, you know, there was an op-ed that I read a number of months back that, that essentially likened this to the race for, you know, nuclear supremacy back, you know, half century ago. That's comforting. And, and, well, and it, it's scary because if you think about it, what, what a super, you know, a supercomputer, actually, that's, that's the wrong terminology. Now, now we're faster than that. We're at a quantum computing pace. But quantum computers, the promise of them is that they would literally be able to crack all existing encryption that exists today. And so that means whether it's in the financial services arena, or even in the defense and national security arena, the country, the group that's able to make the greatest advances with quantum computing is going to have an incredible advantage relative to other players. Now you take that as well to what does it mean for artificial intelligence and, and machine learning? The implications are profound. I mean, we're, all, we're only in the early innings of thinking about how we can process alternative data for underwriting decisions, whether that be in the insurance context or the lending context. 
you start introducing the notion of quantum computing, we're going to have machines that are capable of doing incredible things in, in terms of decisioning. Not to mention, if you flip this over to the capital market space, imagine what algo trading could start to look like and the speed with which it could, it could consume all of this available da data out there is pretty profound. Basically, you need a PhD to quite literally understand, a PhD in physics to understand how your, uh, how your HFT uh, 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 execution is, is is being performed. Totally. So for all the younger people that don't know the 80s and 90s rap references we were making earlier, what I, I, what I advise younger people today is to study your computer engineering, take a couple of those classes, data science classes, because I honestly think these are going to be prereqs to be competitive in the future. Okay. So number three. The Fed Now System. Now, the Fed Now system, uh, shout out to Aaron Klein over at Brookings, who, who is I, I, arguably the biggest backer, intellectual sort of proponent um, uh, of, of, of a kind of upgrade of the Fed uh, payment system. And the Fed Now system would offer an option for consumers uh, and businesses to transfer money uh, to one another in a, quote, ubiquitous, safe, and efficient manner, and almost uh, instantaneously, apparently. Uh, and it will permit banks of every size, according to um, Fed Governor Bra uh, Lael Brainerd, uh, every size in every community across the country to provide real-time payments. And this is really uh, designed in part to assist uh, folks when it comes to financial inclusion and the fact that uh, the people who are most likely to lack access uh, to uh, real-time payments are low-income Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck. And so the idea is let's upgrade this uh, payment system, this payment rail, and make it available to anyone so that they don't have to wait forever to get paid. Um, and you know, and that, sometimes that, that gap is the kind of gap that can kill a person's credit or it can make it impossible for them to uh, pay their mortgage or pay their rent and, and to help to assist people there. Now, uh, I would give the Fed now perhaps the better late than never award. Uh, you know, real-time payments is is something uh, that's not exactly radical. I mean, it was proposed in 2015. Other countries have been moving in this direction for, for, for quite a while, but it's certainly gotten a lot of people's attention and it's ruffled some feathers too because right. on, on the private side, some of the banks were, were looking to create uh, their own version uh, or, and they still may be uh, looking to create their own version. Uh, but certainly the, the absence of a real-time payment rail uh, in the United States is just, uh, kind of kind of peculiar. And it's interesting, too, because I think most estimates that I've seen, or at least what the Fed has said about actual implementation of FedNow won't be until 2023 or 2024. So oh, really? you're talking about, you know, another five years from <laughs> uh, from this point. But, but uh, it, you know, I think that FedNow raises a couple of really interesting questions. You know, one of them, actually something that I uh, wrote about recently with Kabir Kumar from uh, from Flourish. Uh, on the topic of what's the right role of government versus the private sector when you talk about certain financial infrastructure. So it's a really important question to ask here. And and I do think, you know, with FedNow, you, you, want, you might want to start thinking about what are the compelling governmental interests involved? Why would they go ahead and issue uh, this type of rails when there already is this, this private sector uh, potentially competing system? 
Um, look, at the end of the day, more competition uh, could be a good thing as long as it's a level playing field. You know, if the government tries to tip the scale so that you, you know, have to or, or should adopt FedNow, that may not be the competitive landscape that you're looking for. It could also potentially chill some of the adoption of the, uh, the private clearinghouse uh, option that's been launched. But I also think one of the really interesting long-term questions to ask here is who's going to have access to FedNow? Creating all kinds of interesting questions, again, on the financial inclusion end of things, um, level playing field questions, as well as supervisory uh, questions. But I think um, in any event, the fact that here in the United States, you know, uh, that we're actually trying to tackle this this head on is, is, is going to prove to be uh, quite significant. Well, we will now move to number two, where there's really no question about uh, falling behind or trying to, to, to leap forward. Drum roll, please. China's Digital Yuan. Hello and welcome to World Insight, coming to you live from Beijing on CGTN. We begin today's program with cryptocurrency from China. The People's Bank of China could become the world's first central bank to introduce its own digital currency. That This is a really interesting uh, project. Basically, the idea is that the People's Bank of China is looking to introduce a digital version of their currency. Um, the purposes of which are a little bit disputed, as we've talked about even here on the podcast. We've, we've had a number of uh, really uh, global experts from the IMF sort of discussing this, this idea as to whether or not or to what degree it's being geared towards improving the efficiency of payments in China or whether or not it's also a, a means by which individuals will be able to in- increase their own sense of financial inclusion because they would be able to engage in commerce with presumably less friction, less, less, less costs. Uh, and then there's the, the, the larger question of, uh, uh, you know, surveillance and the surveillance state and, and whether or not by using uh, a digital currency, particularly one that's leveraging any anything resembling uh, a distributed ledger, allows the state to sort of exercise surveillance to a, gr- a, a, a better degree than, than anywhere. And then there are all kinds of debates as to how how uh, much of a game changer it'll be. So, so in that way, I, I guess there are several kinds of different names and special awards that the uh, Chinese digital yuan could get. It could get the, quote, uh, maybe the best marketing in the world award. Uh, it may instead be the uh, move over deep state award. Uh, or perhaps it's the, uh, quote, uh, U.S. Better Get Its Act Together Award, which some people have also uh, made that argument. Uh, you, as in particular, along with uh, the former chairman, uh, Chris Giancarlo, had a very interesting op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, talking not just about this particular development, but just the, the move to digital payments and digital currencies writ, writ large. What did you take from, yes. from this? So the, the Chinese digital yuan project, you know, we don't know the details yet, um, but I suspect it's going to turn the entire argument of what was good about Bitcoin on its head in the sense that, you know, Bitcoin stands for this concept of a decentralized uh, ledger, right? Here, I think what the Chinese will likely do is create something that is heavily, heavily centralized. And to level set, at the end of the day, the most efficient way to manage payments would probably be to have a massive centralized database that can track when Dan sends Chris a couple dollars or a couple yuan. And that could be very, very efficient. 
but it definitely doesn't solve for certain concerns like resiliency, redundancy, privacy. I mean, there may be some concerns that people would have if, you know, a central bank has complete access to all payment information real time without any legal process around it. So now I'm going to flip to, you know, what what Chris Giancarlo and I have have suggested, which is it is very important for the U.S. to be testing and piloting blockchain for the dollar. So effectively digitizing the U.S. dollar. Why would we do this? Because there are these purported benefits of the blockchain. And the only way we're going to know whether those benefits exist, whether it be efficiency, lower costs, in some ways, greater transparency, we got to actually test it. Um, The other reason, though, that the U.S. needs to do this is to offer an alternative model to this kind of massive centralized database system, which is where a lot of payment platforms may move in the future. The U.S. has legal and due process. So if we incorporate our banks our trusted payment intermediaries into a a layer, a private sector layer that can work with the Fed in piloting and testing a digital dollar, you can maintain those safeguards that the U.S. system has. And hopefully, if the advantages of the blockchain are real, you will continue to have most of the world want to gravitate and adopt a digital dollar. But to not test it now just seems somewhat foolish. So now, what we've all been waiting for, number one. Number one. Number one. Number one. Number one. Number one. Drum roll, please. Libra. We're going to get into astrological signs now, Chris? Wait, that's, oh, that's right. That's right. Oh, 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 you missed oh, that. That's sorry. right. That's right. It's, it's, the other, it's, it's the other one. This is a, a maybe the most important uh, development, if for no other reason, because it really began to signify fintech coming to, to, to Washington. And, and I, don't, I don't necessarily mean Mr. Smith coming to Washington. It's like a kind of a variation of Mr. Smith. Although I guess we had another, instead of Mr. Smith, I guess we had Mr. Mr. Zuckerberg coming to, to, to Washington. Thank you, Chairwoman Waters, uh, Ranking Member McHenry, and, and members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today. And, you know, what I found most fascinating about this is it really got the attention of lawmakers. And, and, I, and I want to stress lawmakers and not, not necessarily regulators, but I, I, I know that they're highly engaged on the issue. But when you go straight to the source and you're getting the lawmakers on both parties involved uh, and uh, focusing their attention on you, uh, that's a really, really big deal. I think that, uh, you know, Libra, there are so many. It's just the surfeit of different kinds of awards, which, which could be given uh, to, 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 to Libra. Um, I, I, I think uh, Libra would maybe get the, in terms of the, the rollout itself. So I'm not really talking about uh, the, 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 the project because I think it's, it's, it's the rollout, which if you're a Washingtonian is the most interesting thing about this. And we can get into the substance in, in, in just a moment. But it's like from a procedural matter, it would maybe get the worse than a slow car wreck award. Or uh, maybe it would get the, I thought they had lobbyists award. You know, it's like, like how is it, you know, that it, it just sort of ended up um, being, uh, you know, such a, a big deal, I think, is, is something that, that people are going to be thinking about for, for years to come. I mean, I, testifying on it, was, was which I spent part of my year 
doing was just really interesting because a lot of what I was thinking about was just sort of the nuts and bolts issues, but just as a phenomenon and a cultural phenomenon in the in the city. It's really uh, taken everyone uh, by by storm. Yeah, Chris, it's it's one of those things you talk about fintech really coming to Washington in a big way. I think that's what happens when you have over 2 billion potential users and you're talking about currency. That has profound kind of monetary policy implications. There's emotional, the emotional, national security, absolutely territoriality, which we've seen kind financial of stability. It's, it raises, I mean, Every, as a law school professor, Chris, I, I know you get excited yeah, and I teach yeah, my yeah. class as well. This is like, this is like the issue spotting you know, exercise of that course. a professor dreams of. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's like, it's like, like I'm going to find an issue that touches on so many different areas and I'm going to move pretty fast. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? And, and, and look, at the end of the day, there's going to be a lot of debate about the merits. But I think net net, this is a good thing in getting people really thinking about the I future agree. of finance. I agree. Right. I agree. And, yeah. and look, it, what it stands for, and I'm going to kind of step back and give my big pitch on what I think fintech in general stands for. Like we know we've got this thing called the internet. It's been around for a long really? time. Yeah. Have you, have you, you haven't no, heard no, about no, it? No, 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 no. I'm still well, using my carrier pigeons. Uh, the, well, right. those, those, actually, that might be an efficient payment yeah. method. Squawk, I mean, squawk, could that well, beat same so. day settlement? Maybe. Maybe. Um, that's faster than some, hey, it's faster it, than, it, than, than the, our current it is. rails. But, but look, coming back to, you know, the internet. So what does the internet let us do? It lets us connect with someone halfway around the world and send information real time with very little friction and very few intermediaries. The truth is you can do that with information about value as well. And I think all this stuff about digital currencies and Libra and central bank digital currencies, it's getting to that point that we could probably remove friction from the system so that we have even more efficient markets, payment services, settlement, in general, anything that you can move in terms of a value, you should be able to do so more efficiently. But how the, the regulatory rails kind of map to that, that's the big open question. And that's what this is kind of pushing to the surface. Well, looking forward, I'm, I'm a little bit curious uh, about what you think the next year uh, will have in store for us. I mean, 2020. Uh, will will it also be the year of fintech and and even within the world of fintech? I mean, what kinds of things do you think we should be keeping our eye out for? So, I, you know, I want to move almost beyond the term fintech and say we're focused now on the future of finance. Like, what? How is tech going to empower people? Uh, give us better markets, more efficient markets, deeper markets, and better financial services that kind of promote inclusion. I think we're there. I think it's happening, and I'm really excited to see where things go in 2020. Uh, I am also thinking, you know, other things to watch out for heading into 2020. There's been a lot of talk about SoftBank and and some of the valuations in the private markets and, you know, whether there's been potentially a bit of a bubble with some of these uh, uh, investments. I think it's going to be important to see how that flows through next year and probably even more important for companies to be thinking about long-term viability, profitability, sustainability. Those are important metrics, not just the race to get to go public. Yeah, I mean, I think that that when the economy, I mean, eventually the economy will will slow and and when it does slow, we're, you know, it, it it'll be really interesting to see how things kind of wash out in, totally. in in fintech. So, you know, Chris, as we wrap up this decade, it reminds me that it's been I think almost 10 years now since you and I first met and then and the end of that paper. On, and, and we did a paper on kind of what are the what are some of the the policy and regulatory tools that uh, regulators are going to need to kind of take handle the pace of innovation and the nature of innovation heading forward. And I think that's what's ha- – we're seeing that kind of unfold. 
unfold in front of us now. Um, we're going to be heading into the second decade now of crypto. Um, all of these areas of fintech that you and I started talking about, again, nearly a decade ago, they've kind of moved from being, oh, these are really interesting side developments to this is the future of markets. This is the future of finance. And we need to be keeping pace. And uh, you got to keep doing your program so that people are learning. Well, thanks so much, Dan. And I know that you had an excellent suggestion for our outro. I've got one last uh, music clip for you here, Chris. Laid back. With my mind on my money and my money on my mind. Cheers, Dan. Cheers. I'm Chris Brummer. Thanks for listening. We want to hear from you. Feel free to email us at fintechbeat at cqrollcall.com or tweet to at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.